This episode is brought to you by Pepsi Wild Cherry. Pepsi Wild Cherry is bursting with delicious cherry flavor and a sweet, crisp taste that gives you more to go wild for. Getting wild may look different these days, but whether it's opting for a solo Friday binge watch or a big night out, everyone can indulge in their wild side with Pepsi Wild Cherry, also available in Zero Sugar. So grab a Pepsi Wild Cherry and get wild. Hurricane, tropical depression, major rain event, however you regard our good friend Ida. She's responsible for Nomad's game last night. Too bad because momentum from what happened Tuesday figured to be stronger than insert stupid tortured analogy here. Oh, crap. I forgot to do that. Anybody got something? Well, while you come up with a hook, I'll hit the music. We got a podcast starting now. Mets in the morning. Mets in the morning. Oh, yeah. Mets in the morning. Gonna tell you what the Mets are doing while coffee is brewing now. Here's Josh Lewin. Scoodly down. I got it. Stronger than the smell of five-day-old Indian food that was left in the sun outside a Gargonzola cheese factory. There. Boom. Roasted. Josh Lewin with you. Thank you for being here. The pause button has been hit until the game against Miami tonight. Carlos Carrasco is still in search of his first Mets win. That'll begin at 7-10 tonight at City Field. Meantime, Mets fans from Poughkeepsie to Peru still buzzing about the two-win Tuesday that came before this rained out Wednesday. Are there Mets fans in Peru? Gotta be one or two. Somewhere on the way towards the, the top of Machu Picchu. Why not? Maybe there's some random Peruvian in a throwback Keith Hernandez jersey riding LFGM in the dirt. Anyway, the jolt that Mets fans got as a team rallied to win on Tuesday afternoon. It carried right into the 3-1 win in the nightcap. Got the Mets back to within a mere six games of first place with 30 games to go. And it was proven yet again that in sports in general, but in New York especially, if you just win, you can do whatever you darn well please with your thumbs. Up, down, sideways, hitchhike to Yonkers, stick them in a pie. It's not that big of a deal if you deliver. In that game one, it was ugly for a while. The Marlins ran on Dom Smith's arm to score a couple of early runs. They went four for four in stolen base attempts, one of which came when Pat Mazika moved for a pitch out, and Heath Embry, unaware of that, threw towards the plate. Mets were hitless in their seven at-bats with runners in scoring position. They had trailed five to one. It was a comatose eight innings, but... From doom to delirium with a five-run, potentially season-saving ninth and a pair of guys each hitting around 215 coming through. First Baez, then Conforto, then technically Baez again as he made his mad dash from first to home. Down the stretch, both those guys are on a list of uh, players who need to play their best ball right now. Conforto still batting just 217, 708 OPS. That's despite getting hot in August. Hopefully there's a turnaround afoot. Lindor has an on-base plus slugging percentage of 680. He only has 11 home runs, though in fairness, he did spend five weeks on the IL. McNeil now hitting 250, 683 OPS. Not only is he not running into any power, he's not hitting for the average that we're used to. Dom Smith, last year, 10 home runs, 32 extra base hits, and 177 at-bats. This year, uh, 11 home runs, 27 extra base hits in 411 at-bats. And the catchers, James McCann is still out. Tomas Nito just got reshuffled back to the IL. 
I know your catchers in a playoff race aren't supposed to be Chance Cisco and Pat Mazika, but here we are. Mets catchers this year hitting 221, nine homers, 37 runs batted in, 30 walks, 130 strikeouts. Mike Piazza, Todd Hundley, Gary Carter. Hey, bring back Travis Darno. This kind of reminds me of the first year I was working radio for the Mets in 2012 when the catchers combined for five home runs and hit 218. Yep, in the salad days of Josh Tolley, Mike Nickius, Rob Johnson, and Kelly Shopik. So the upshot for here in 21, the guys just went 9-19 and in August, meaning from here on, they're going to have to flip that script and maybe even a little bit more. I think 20-10 and 10 may well do it. I really do. But here's the thing. You've got series still to play against the Yankees, Red Sox, Brewers, and Braves. As of now, those are all playoff teams. And nine of those games will be on the road. So let's say the Mets manage to somehow go four and five in those nine road games against playoff teams. That means their margin for error is basically zip when they play anybody else. Those other 21 games are going to have to go 16 and five. Not impossible, but certainly more probable if Lindor, Conforto, Smith, and McNeil all get out of the quicksand and onto the asphalt. Okay, so last night's game postponed because of Ida. I called the Hurricane Irma yesterday on the podcast. I'm not really sure why, but what do you do on a rainy day? You put on a movie, you binge watch Law and Order, uh, you get your brain some sunshine by watching some really interesting documentaries. Aha, aha. In less than two weeks, the latest ESPN 30 for 30 will debut, and it's all about the 86 Mets, the last World Series champion for the Mets, a team that was a joy to the locals and a huge pain in the ass to everyone else in baseball. The four-part documentary is called Once Upon a Time in Queens, and the director, Nick Davis, joins us for the remainder of the podcast. Hope you enjoy this conversation. So indeed, the great Nick Davis able to take some time with us for a couple weeks out now from being able to see Once Upon a Time in Queens. And so many questions for you, Nick. First of all, thanks so much for taking the time. You can't be surprised that there's this much interest in the project, I wouldn't think. Even though this year's Mets are slogging along a couple games under 500, this is an interest point that really never goes out of style, I guess. Yeah, I think as Met fans, you know, we cling to uh, 69 and 86 and it, because, it's, as you say, it's, it's all we've got. Um, you know, let's hope that uh, the new era and the new ownership brings uh, a lot more. But, um, yeah, no, it, they are one of the most storied teams of all time, uh, it, you know, as talented as they were entertaining on and off the field. Um, so I'm uh, just so thrilled that people are finally going to be able to see this thing. Well, and as much as it's great to have you involved, I mean, you're a pretty famous, really good uh, filmmaker and director, but the the list of producers on this thing, I think, has everybody's attention, too. God bless Jimmy Kimmel, uh, who, by the way, I interviewed in the 2000 NLDS. He was sitting in the stands. Fox was trying to promote him because they had this brand new thing starting up. Uh, so they sent me as the uh, Ken Rosenthal type into the San Jose <laughs> to interview him for like five pitches. I had no idea who he was. So now uh, here's Jimmy Kimmel, one of the producers of this thing. Yeah, it's terrific. I, we're very, very lucky to have him. Um, and it was just a completely fortuitous set of circumstances that that uh, brought us all together. So, um, yeah, couldn't couldn't be more thrilled. I feel like we've got a, uh, 
you know, uh, I don't know if it's an 86 Mets level of lineup uh, of producers, but it's a it's a team of all-stars that uh, made this thing, I'd like to think. Yeah, I mean, who are some of the other people? Because they, some are familiar names, some aren't, but it is a great group. Well, uh, on the producing side, uh, it, it's uh, Jimmy and Cousin Sal, uh, Sal Iacono, and Nick Trotta of Major League Baseball, David George of ITV, um, and it was, a, a you know, it, people... You know, some are interested in what goes on behind the scenes and, and sort of putting this team together. Uh, it was kind of interesting. I mean, it, to be honest, the way this project began for me, I, I well, obviously am a huge Mets fan. I remember in this summer of 85 being at a game at Shea in August that Gooden was pitching. It wasn't the 16 strikeout game against the Giants, but it was another amazing Gooden game. And I remember just soaking it all in and, and the fans were roaring, thinking, this is never going to happen again. Um, and feeling like that the creation of that team was miraculous and and had to be documented in some way. And so all these years later, I was uh, my last film was an American Masters for PBS on the baseball player Ted Williams, and I was working with Major League Baseball, and I talked to them briefly about doing the 86 Mets. Why had no one ever done it in a long form? And they said, well, timing, a lot of things. And I met with ESPN the day that Ted Williams aired, which was July of uh, 2018, and I sort of started a pitch uh, on, you know, the 86 Mets, and they were like, yeah, 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 we get pitched that all the time, you know, and the guy gave me a long laundry list of things I would need to do in order to make it happen, get the Mets, get Major League Baseball on board, do a thorough treatment and, a, and work out a, a better pitch than I had that morning. And most of all, he said, look, you know, no offense, Nick, but you're going to need an 800-pound gorilla. Um, and so uh, maybe six or eight months later, fortuitous set of circumstances, uh, one of the other executive producers I didn't name, Scott Locker, uh, had been an agent and he had gone over to Jimmy Kimmel's company and was running Kimmel's company and, and knew about this project and knew that Jimmy loved the 86 Met and sort of he brokered the deal. Uh, so we went into ESPN a little more than a year after I originally told them of the idea and pitched them on the project, had Jimmy, had the Mets, had Major League Baseball. And as we're walking out of the meeting, the ESPN executive, a guy named Adam Newhouse, is a terrific guy. He said to me, no one's ever listened to me before. <laughs> so uh, from that moment to this, it was about two years ago, uh, we've been doing nothing but making this film. So, Nick, who are some of the Mets that are really going to be the breakout stars? And who are some of the guys you wanted to get that didn't jump on board? Uh, well, I think, look, Daryl and Keith are the souls of the film. Gary Carter and, and Doc. I mean, you know, there were four, you know, uh, breakout stars of that team, Gary and, and Keith and Doc and Daryl. And we have, obviously, the three surviving m members of that quartet and Sandy Carter uh, gave us a wonderful interview. I think people are going to be surprised by uh, Kevin Mitchell. I think people are going to be surprised by... Um, well, I don't know to what extent people are surprised by Lenny Dykstra, but he's amazing in the film. Uh, he's so colorful, so delightful. Mookie is amazing. Uh, Ray Knight is amazing. They're all, I mean, one of the things that made that team so special is what I hope 
people will take from the documentary, they're still wonderful characters. They're, they're larger-than-life personalities. And as much as I'm talking to you as a Met fan, I'm also talking to you as a filmmaker, and I feel like this film is, I hope, going to speak to people who are not only not Met fans, but not baseball fans, um, because of the human interest of these guys' stories. Dwight Gooden's story is an incredible one. Daryl's story is an incredible one. What Keith went through with his father is a fascinating, complex psychodrama that is weaving its way through the four parts of this film. So um, there's a lot to to hold on to in this film, and I'm really excited. Wally Backman's terrific, also. I mean, they're all great. I, I, I you know, I think that the characters uh, in this film are are really what make it special, and what made that team special. Are there any recluses? I mean, guys that don't want to even remember this was part of their lives, or, or does everybody want to celebrate this? Well, I think George Foster uh, is the one that, uh, you know, I would love to have interviewed George Foster. He was sure. such an important part of the building of that team. When Doubleday bought the team in 1980, he turns around and hires Frank Cash, and Frank Cash knew it was going to take four or five years to, to put the team together, but one of his first big moves in 82 was to make a trade from, and bring over George Foster from the Big Red Machine. And you know, the move didn't exactly work out. Certainly Foster's first year was, was not a good one. Um, and he had lost, uh, he had lost a step for sure. But it's, it was a signal to the rest of baseball, like, hey, the Mets are serious. They're getting real players in. And, um, and so I really wanted to, to tell that part of the story. And we do, we tell it. Um, and then the way Foster left the team uh, in August of 1986 is, you know, something that I think a lot of people don't remember. Um, but it was, it was, you know, very unfortunate and it wasn't a happy ending for George. And so, uh, originally he said, no, I'm not going to participate. And then I got on the phone with him. He said that, uh, through, uh, Jay Horowitz and then, and Jay was amazing. And by the way, Jay is a great character in the film as well. Um, we interviewed him and, and I think Met fans have always sort of had a soft spot for him and it's terrific to, to get to hear his stories. Um, Anyway, I did get on the phone with George Foster and and said, look, man, you've got a great story to tell. We'd like you to be part of it. You were part of the team. And he said, okay, I'll do it. And then COVID hit and, you know, uh, it became more complicated to do production. And George sent me a very nice text saying, you know, I, I think I'm going to bow out. Um, so he's he's the one that got away. But it, honestly, everybody else uh, that I wanted to, uh, to get uh, took part in, I think, because so many years have gone by and these guys... They're they're less concerned about you know holding on to their reputation and more willing to look back and tell the true story of what went on that incredible uh, summer. It, it is a shame about George. I mean, he's the guy that had the the big rap single that that he wanted to to push out. I mean, it, it all started <laughs> yes. with him with the whole uh, get mesmer, get mesmerized. Thing. Get mesmerized. Get yeah. mesmerized. Yeah. No, we include a wonderful uh, clip from Get Mesmerized, oh, uh, including we have a bunch of, uh, you know, uh, you know, well-known New Yorkers from the time, uh, and, and Chuck D, uh, the rapper from Long Island, uh, gives a nice comment on, uh, on that song. <laughs> I love it. So, you know, looking at the, at the network release, they're promising, and I'm quoting, hours of never-before-seen footage, which I think is what I'm really looking forward to. What, what's the nature of that footage, and, and how, well, did, how did you get it? 
Well, the exciting thing is there was a documentary crew uh, that was following intermittently the team that year, and they had a lot of footage and and that that people have just never seen. Some of it is you know the guys hanging out in the clubhouse and in the locker room before the game, which is terrific, and we use some of that in episode three. But some of it is just camera angles you haven't seen before, and I had never seen. Uh, I guess I had seen a little clip of the side angle on Mookie's ground ball uh, that went through Buckner's legs. But to watch that play out from that angle uh, is incredible. And then the cameraman storms the field and is on the field. Mookie, for some reason that he can't explain, uh, rounded first and went on towards second, even though you know the game was over. And so the cameraman finds him in this sea. We're all used to this kind of shot nowadays. Um, but I, I had never seen the footage of Mookie on the mound being, you know, pummeled by his teammates, and then the cameraman follows him. It's a fantastic tracking shot. It's like, you know, uh, you know the Scorsese Copacabana shot. You follow Mookie off the field into the dugout, down the steps into the dugout, and then through policemen who are patting him on the back, then into the long tunnel and down the long tunnel towards the clubhouse. That's a shot that no one had ever seen before, and to to watch it play out after this miracle has happened uh, is really uh, one of my favorite moments in the film. How, and I know with, with Doc, I mean, in various iterations, he's been able to talk candidly about what happened with him during the course of that year and certainly during the, the World Series parade. Although I, I got to tell you, Nick, I mean, there's always kind of a tint of, are we really getting all of it? Because sometimes it, it changes just enough. We're a little dubious about what is Dwight really opening up about? How open was he with you about that? And did he reveal things that you really think were honest? Completely open. Uh, he was very, very open. I mean, I think one of the things he sees now is, first of all, every day, you know, it's one day at a time, uh, but that his struggle is inspiring to other people. And, and he knows that if he tells his story, he's going to reach some people. And, and so I don't think he's holding anything back. And certainly emotionally, I mean, you know, details, he may miss a detail here or there, as all these guys do. Uh, but, but the emotional truth of what he went through, and also the roots of it um, is something that that I think hasn't really been explored. Certainly in in you know in a longer film like this before, some of what he went through in his in his childhood growing up, uh, I, I had no idea about until I delved into this project. And and you know the violence that he saw as a kid, you know when they came along, and obviously there have been you know Doc and Daryl was a, a fine documentary about the two of them, you know, they, everybody lumped Doc and Daryl together. But when they came along, um, we all knew as Met fans, they weren't really that close. They weren't best friends. They were young African-American superstars at the top of their game. And so we lumped them all together, but they were very different. And the story that we were told at the time was, Daryl had a rough childhood, but Doc didn't. Doc came from a stable, middle-class background, and he's fine. And then when Doc fell on hard times, it was that much more mystifying. But as Doc tells in the in the film, his childhood was no walk in the park either. And some of the violence that he witnessed was absolutely traumatic and contributed, I 
I have no doubt, to his seeking uh, refuge in, in drugs and alcohol, and, and ultimately his, uh, you know, uh, not being the superstar that we all wanted him to be. Finishing up with Nick Davis, and I feel like Larry King here. The project is Once Upon a Time in Queens, a four-part documentary event, and it is just a little less than a couple weeks away now from launching for everyone to see as part of the, the great 30-30 run that ESPN puts together. Four-part event. Could it have been just as easily, Nick, a six- or an eight-part event? I mean, was there that much stuff that you had to work with? Yes, absolutely. In fact, I had originally thought that I would do it as a seven-parter. I thought seven parts, seven games, that made sense. Uh, I was told by several people, no, the market can take four. The first rough cut was six hours and 25 minutes. Um, and we had to get it down to three hours and 20, which is four 50-minute episodes. Uh, but the yeah, the wealth of material that we didn't include, uh, so many great stories we just didn't have time for. Um, but I think that the overall story that we are telling is absolutely intact. Uh, there's, there's nothing missing uh, that, that, that we didn't include. I know this is a bit of a poll, but is there one thing or even a couple of items from the cutting room floor that you're thinking just kind of off the top of your head, man, I wish I would have had five more minutes because that thing was cool. Yeah, yeah, sure. I mean, Ray Knight told a great story about stopping Daryl and Gary Carter from having a fight on the bus in St. Louis uh, where, uh, you know, Carter was signing autographs and wouldn't get on the bus and the game was over and it was hot and the team wanted to get back to the hotel, or at least Daryl wanted to get back to the hotel. And so he opens the window and shouts out the window, hey, Carter, camera Carter, get your ass in here, let's go. And Gary got on the bus and was steaming mad and was heading back towards Daryl in the back of the bus. And Ray Knight stood up and stopped Carter and stopped Daryl and said, we're not going to fight each other. And I think what that story revealed is that we all gave so much credit to Gary and Keith as being the two leaders of this team, the yin and yang, Gary Carter and Keith Hernandez, these two great leaders. But Ray Knight was the glue, and he was the unsung hero on that team, and I, I, I do wish we'd had time for that story. We make the point about Ray Knight in other ways. Great stuff, Nick, and I feel the same way. I feel like we're going to leave stuff on the cutting room floor, but I do have a cap of time on the pod, so I'm going to say thank you. Well, thank you so much, Josh. It's a thrill to talk to you, and I can't wait for people to see this series. No, it's going to be fantastic. You've got such a great storyteller's touch, and you've got the best subject ever, so it can't miss. <laughs> Thanks, buddy. Thank you. Really appreciate Nick Davis. The documentary begins with part one on ESPN weekend after next. I'm really looking forward to seeing what I don't already know. Uh, one thing I do know, the Mets have a game scheduled with Miami tonight. Then over the weekend, it's down to D.C. for a four-game series with the team best described as Juan Soto and a bunch of guys you've never heard of. But we do know of Sean Nolan as he makes yet another start against the Mets in the opener on Friday. It's like how Shaq is in every third commercial on television these days. Sean Nolan seems to pitch every third day against the Mets this summer. Rich Hill, the 41-year-old lefty for the Mets, and we won't see the Mets at home again until Friday, September 10th against a little old team called the New York Yankees. All right, let's meet the Mets in the Morning House Band before we say goodbye. They're working so hard behind the scenes. On keyboards, Jason Tyner slapping to bass. It's Lenny Randall. The horn section, Eric Campbell. 
And on drums, ladies and gentlemen, Roy Lee Jackson. This is Josh Lewin. Hope you enjoyed the pod. Make sure you tell people about it. Give us a nice five-star Uber review if you wouldn't mind. That's always appreciated. Have yourself a wonderful rest of the day. Thank you.